Today we have a very special podcast for you. All six of our program directors and our CEO, Danielle Wood, will be discussing their contributions to Grattan's 2022 Orange Book. If you'd like to read any of the recommendations that are discussed in this podcast, you can download the report for free online at grattan.edu.au. To kick us off, we've got Danielle Wood, our CEO, introducing the Orange Book for 2022. So Grattan Institute's Orange Book sets out our policy recommendations for the incoming federal government. It's our riff on the public service red and blue books, the incoming government briefs that they prepare for the Labor and coalition governments respectively. Ours is in the signature Grattan Orange and it sets out the ideas that we hope will be appealing to any new government regardless of their political stripes. There is a lot in it. We are drawing on 13 years of, of Grattan's back book of work and research and distilling it down into ideas that we think are topical today. So we've got things there about boosting incomes, improving health and education, creating better transport links, making housing more affordable, progress on climate change and strengthening our political institutions. So you'll hear a lot about each of these from the program directors on the podcast. But what I think is worth really stressing is that now is the time for progress on some of these ideas. Governments have rightly spent the last couple of years thinking about the health and economic response to the crisis. It's not over yet, but we do have more space now for the conversation about what Build Back Better might look like and the policies that we need to get us there. So we think now is the time for boldness. Now is the time for policy energy around all of these issues. And if you got a fair whack of the Orange Book done over the next decade, we would be living in an Australia with higher incomes, less poverty, better quality and more efficiently delivered services, a livable climate, stronger democratic institutions. And that's something that we really hope our next government can get behind. The first program director to present is Brendan Coates, Economic Policy Program Director. So Australia's economy has fed pretty well during COVID. You know, we've got the unemployment rate down to 4.2%, which is the lowest we've seen in more than a decade. Compared to many other countries, Australia's approach to COVID has given us better health outcomes and better economic outcomes than most other countries. However, there are deeper challenges that we still face. One of those is the fact that most Australians have not seen a pay rise, a meaningful pay rise for something close to a decade now. So Australian wages growth has been very weak. um, And in fact, Australians overall have not seen strong pay rises for some time. That reflects in part the fact that uh, we've seen slow productivity growth. So productivity growth in Australia has been very weak over the last few years, certainly much slower than in the decades prior um, to the global financial crisis in 2008. But at the same time, weak wages growth is partly explained by there being too much spare capacity in the labour market. The Reserve Bank has undershot its inflation target of 2 to 3% for about the last six years. And before COVID, the unemployment rate was actually something like a percentage point higher than what the RBA's estimate of full employment was, which means hundreds of thousands of Australians are out of work because monetary policy was too tight. So going forward, there are some challenges that we need to address. Wealth inequality is also on the rise in Australia. So there is a growing gap between the housing haves and have-nots in Australia, and wealth inequality broadly has been increasing, even if income inequality is not. So what should Australia do? What should the next federal government do? to try to boost Australians' living standards. Well, some of the big opportunities do sit in areas like tax. So we should be shifting our tax system away from income tax, relying more on consumption taxes like the GST, scaling back those tax concessions, 
like the super tax, superannuation tax breaks, like the capital gains tax discount. These things would provide an economic payoff to Australians in the form of higher incomes. Now, none of them are particularly easy. They involve governments being upfront and clear about what the challenges are and what they should do about them. Other areas where we should be looking as well is improving the composition of Australia's migrant intake. So much of the public discussion focuses on the size of Australia's migrant intake. Improving the composition of the skilled intake in particular has the potential for huge benefits to the Australian community. So Australia's skilled migrant intake is on average younger, more skilled and earns higher incomes than the community as a whole. That means they pay more in income tax than they draw in services, providing a long-term fiscal dividend to Australians. And because migrants who come here on permanent visas are here for 40 years in the workforce, who we select to, to grant permanent visas to has an enormous impact on the Australian community, on, on the, the quality of the, the, the skill set of the Australian workforce in the long run. But permanent skill migration policy has been going in the wrong direction. We've been pulling back the parts of the program that have actually delivered us the greatest dividends. So we've been taking fewer people through points-tested visas uh, that tend to have higher earnings and be younger. And we've taken more people through things like the Business Investment Innovation Program. The problem being that business investment uh, visa holders tend to be older, less skilled, and actually earn lower incomes than the other part of the, of the intake. So what we should be doing is instead of relying upon our skills list to determine who gets access to a permanent visa, we should be pushing instead for a wage threshold of $80,000. And if you, if you, an employer is willing to sponsor you for at least a job that's going to earn $80,000, then you can be granted a permanent visa in Australia. We should also look at reviewing the, the points tested visas in Australia. Now, these changes would make a big difference. They'd have a very large fiscal dividend. They would also probably boost innovation in the long run. And they would give us the skills mix that we need, you know, for the economy to, to, to grow in you know, over the course of the next decade. Australians are spending more of their incomes on housing than they have in the past, particularly uh, lower, people on lower incomes. Home ownership has been falling really fast amongst Australians of all ages that are on low incomes. And rising housing costs have also been contributing to inequality and rising homelessness in Australia. So what should we do about that? Well, first of all, housing will only become cheaper if we build more of it. So the federal government does not run land use planning systems. That's the responsibility of the states. So what we should be doing is encouraging the states by offering incentives, sticks or carrots, to push them to reform their planning rules to allow more housing to be built in the inner and middle ring suburbs of our major cities. So to support people who are otherwise at risk of homelessness, we should be establishing a $20 billion social housing future fund that would then be that endowment would generate a return each year that could be used to fund social housing with little or no hit to the to the federal government's um, underlying cash balance. We need to raise the rate of Commonwealth rent assistance by at least forty percent. That would help Australians, including older Australians in retirement that are struggling, to be able to keep a roof over their heads by giving them the income they need to afford to pay the rent. And we should establish a national shared equity scheme for those that don't have access to the bank of mum and dad. So that would help younger Australians to get the deposit together in order to buy their first home. Uh, and it would also allow older Australians who are separated from their partner, they still have some savings, particularly older women, to partner with the federal government in order to be able to buy a home that can take them through into retirement and avoid the risk of experiencing poverty while renting in retirement. And we do need to improve the quality of our social safety net. So the rate of job seeker, it's been increased by $50 a fortnight. That needs to go up by another $150 a fortnight, at least, in order to keep pace with the kinds of um, increases in living standards we've seen in Australia over the last few years. At the moment, job seeker is so low still, even with this modest increase that we saw recently, to be the second lowest rate 
of, of, of unemployment insurance paid in the OECD. Tony Wood, our Energy and Climate Change Program Director, will speak next on his recommendations. The federal election this year is going to be held on the back of, in fact, the third year of a pandemic. At this time, the need for a well-designed and ambitious policy program has never been more important, both because we're coming out of a pandemic, but also because we are now having to seriously think about the longer-term future. And that's where the issues of energy and climate change are front and central for whoever's in government, coalition or Labor, because they will need to develop immediate policies to address urgent issues, but policies to address longer-term issues. From agriculture to electricity to buildings to road freight, health, heavy industry, look, climate change is going to affect everything. There'll be uh, all parts of our economy, but even every ministerial portfolio in the new government, in some way, shape or form, will have to consider implications of a changing climate and how we respond to that. And yet, in Australia, we're captured by a political gridlock um, that's ensnared our leaders for far too long. And time's not on our side because you know, we do desperately need urgent these policies that will create the incentives for reducing emissions. Because if we don't, it'll be far more disruptive later. Now, it is true that the major parties have committed to net zero by 2050, and this is a good start, but it's not enough. And whoever wins the next election needs to build, in our view, a set of sector-based emissions reduction policies that are consistent with this long-term 2050 target. So where are the priorities? Well, the first is electricity. In this case, the states and the federal government used to be driving renewable energy. The problem is that this is not going in a very consistent way, and it's important that the new government work very closely with the states to better align their policies for renewable energy with how they get connected to the transmission grid, and that's a significantly important issue. Secondly, industrial emissions are growing strongly, and those emissions would begin to decline if we started to do something about that. Particularly, we could do so through what is known as the government's safeguard mechanism already exists. Thirdly, in transport, a significant contributor to our emissions, there's about 100 million tonnes there. The majority of that comes with small and light light commercial vehicles. Putting in place an emission standard now would bend the curve to reduce emissions in the longer term. And then agriculture. Agriculture is tricky because of burping cows and sheep, but there are things we could do. For example, the government could reinstate an outreach program of of providing good advice on farm advice to farmers to help reduce their emissions and even create new sources of revenue. And finally, and most exciting, the government could work with industry and people in the regions of Australia to deliver the opportunities that do lie in the huge comparative advantage that we have in our critical minerals and our renewable energy. And these opportunities could more than replace what's there today in coal. On the energy side of this equation, there's never been a worse time to stall on market reform. We are committed to net zero, and that means we are going to need the policies to ensure that that move towards renewables to reduce emissions in electricity is matched by a policy to make sure we have the what's called the um, resource adequacy or the capacity which is there when the wind isn't blowing and the sun isn't shining. It's possible to do. We've been arguing about this for several years now and it's incumbent on the new minister, whoever they are in the new government, to work with their colleagues to really put in place the market structures to drive that investment. We've also seen the fact that courtesy of announcements recently by companies like Origin and the current and would-be owners of AGL that we did to do something about the coal-fired power stations, but there's not a shortage of money. What is needed is clear rules on how we're going to do that. The second issue is going to be making sure that 
the transmission grid is up to dealing with the huge move towards renewables. And thirdly, we need to make sure that the huge uptake of rooftop solar by Australians is not going to stuff things up and create more problems. And then finally is natural gas. Natural gas has been a very valuable contributor to our economy for a long time, but we need to have a plan to move away from natural gas, both in our homes, in our businesses, and also progressively as natural gas is a feedstock for petrochemicals. There's no reason why we can't do that. It won't be an easy one because gas is so ingrained in so much of what we do, both at home and at work. Now, this is an essential but also ambitious program. We recognise that, but it's urgent. We've had this decades of gridlock and things need to change. We do know there's lots of opportunities, not just in energy and climate change, as our Orange Book says. Now's the time for the next government and the next minister in the energy and climate portfolio to really make a difference. Marion Terrell, our Transport and Cities Program Director, is about to speak. The election promises have started in earnest. Late in February, the Deputy Prime Minister promised an additional $678 million for the Outback Way. Labor has been yet again renewing its commitment to high-speed rail. This time it's been prioritising Newcastle to Sydney. If history is any guide, this is just the beginning. There's a lot wrong with the approach to transport infrastructure where we find politicians promising projects in an election campaign or a pseudo-election campaign without doing their due diligence first. I'm going to run through some recommendations that would improve the situation in three ways. First, there should be a tighter process for establishing new transport infrastructure projects. I'm not talking about stopping governments and ministers from making decisions that they're elected to make, but more about putting the brakes on the reckless use of public money. So first and foremost, ministers shouldn't be able to approve funding for a project worth $100 million or more before the minister has considered Infrastructure Australia's evaluation of the project. That evaluation should include the cost-benefit analysis, and it should include the priority ranking of that project relative to other projects, and it should be made public. I'd also like to see the Commonwealth collect the data on past projects and collate it so that cost estimators are better able to learn from history, including what happened in other states and other parts of the country. It's extraordinary that this hasn't happened before. A related point is that we should have post-completion reviews Everybody agrees that they should be done, but they almost never are, and they really should be. The second set of recommendations that I'd like to talk about relate to the Commonwealth's national coordination role. So the Commonwealth doesn't itself build roads or railway lines, despite what you might think from politicians' statements. Mostly, the Commonwealth contributes funding to state governments. But the Commonwealth does have a national coordination role, and it's a role that's underdone at present there's scope for the Commonwealth to play a more active strategic role. It should do this by addressing the ongoing problem of discount rates used in transport appraisal. Discount rates are a technical issue and they're a very controversial issue, but in a nutshell, projects are being appraised with a very out-of-date discount rate of 7%, which has been stuck at that level for over 30 years. And what's wrong with that is it takes no account of the fact that we're in a very low interest rate environment. And it leads to very distorted project estimates. Decision makers simply can't make good decisions if the project appraisals are knowingly incorrect. 
as well as that, the Commonwealth could work with the states in areas where it doesn't make sense for an individual state to go it alone, particularly for the smaller states, but where there are still gains to be made. One way would be to do regular and rigorous cost benchmarking of road and rail projects, and that would help with cost estimation. Another would be to find out how it is that other countries manage to build transport infrastructure significantly more cheaply than we do. I'll turn now to my third set of recommendations, and this, these relate to emissions from light vehicles. The key point here is that the regulatory role for, for emissions of light vehicles is a Commonwealth role. It's not a state one. There's two types of emissions where we recommend change. So firstly, carbon emissions. This is not difficult. Australia should adopt an emission standard or ceiling for, for new cars across the offering of each manufacturer, just like 80% of the rest of the world does. These are effective. The emission ceiling should be gradually lowered to zero emissions by 2035. What that would mean for us is we get a better range of low emissions cars to choose from, and at the same time, not prohibiting or banning people who need or prefer a particular type of vehicle. And of course, lower emissions vehicles are cheaper to drive for drivers. The other type of emissions is tailpipe pollutants. Now, this is a bit of a chicken and egg problem. Australia's got very dirty petrol, so we can't use the latest pollution reducing technology in cars. We'd like to see the petrol in Australia cleaned up, particularly from sulphur and aromatics. And hand in hand with that, to adopt international vehicle standards so that the cars people buy aren't as toxic to human health. With this suite of recommendations, the federal government would really make a difference in transport. We have Stephen Duckett, Health and Aged Care Program Director, to talk about his recommendations for the federal government. Australia has a relatively good healthcare system. Our life expectancy is above uh, wealthy nation average. Our costs of actually getting there is below the wealthy nation average, but that doesn't mean we should be complacent. There are two grounds for that. First of all, what I just told you was an average, and so as we know, First Nations Australians have a life expectancy of about a decade shorter than uh, the rest of us. And the second point is, just because we're good doesn't mean we're perfect, doesn't mean we can't improve. And this is an area that the incoming government needs to be thinking about. And we can improve in a number of areas. Let's first of all think about the thing that's been on our minds for the last couple of years, COVID. What we know is that COVID created a care deficit. Elective procedures were, were cancelled right across the country. In addition, people didn't go and see a doctor for this suspicious lump. And so there was patient deferred care. And so we've got this catch up of care that needs to happen. But the Commonwealth has said, no, uh, we're not going to share the cost of that 50-50. We, over the last couple of years, have shared all the costs of COVID 50-50. We're only going to share the costs 45-55 ongoing. The new government has to recognise that there are these ongoing costs and a fair share is 50-50, like it's been for the last couple of years. Secondly, there are equity issues in the healthcare system. The biggest example is dental. Why is it that the mouth is seen as somehow separate from the rest of the body? We have these patch up, patchwork of inadequate public programs across the country, each with different criteria. People wait years for dental care. 
we need to actually move on a universal dental scheme. It shouldn't be just more money into the state governments to get them to do more public care. It needs to be universal. So it needs to involve public and private dentists as well. Now, you can't do this overnight. It, it is too expensive and we actually don't have the workforce to do it overnight. But what the government should do is to commit to a 10-year plan to actually move towards universal dental coverage for every Australian. There are also weaknesses in other aspects of the healthcare system. The out-of-pocket payments that Australians make are way, are significantly higher than the average for similar countries. So we need to be doing something about out-of-pocket payments because half a million Australians miss out on specialist care because of costs. And they miss out on pharmaceuticals because of costs. So we actually need to be putting in place uh, new programs to actually try and address those out-of-pocket payments. I'm not saying we should increase the rebates for every doctor or whatever. What I'm saying is we might need to actually expand bulk billing arrangements for specialists, for example, introducing new bulk billing clinics. Another area where we've got weaknesses is in primary care. We need to say, is the primary care funding system fit for purpose? There's been a discussion paper issued late last year which said we ought to move to voluntary enrolment for every Australian over 70 so that they actually link up with a GP and the GP gets paid for looking after their care for, for, for that voluntary enrolment. We ought to extend, extend that to people with multiple chronic illnesses, for example. The primary health insurance system is uh, not going as well as it should. So what we need to do is actually get it, all the players to sit around the table and actually say, let's fix this, let's get a new system. So there's lots of things we can do about improving healthcare. And as we know, there's also lots we ought to be doing about improving aged care as well. The Royal Commission on Aged Care Quality and Safety released its report about 12 months ago this week. If you went on the waiting list for home care 12 months ago this week, you'd still be on the waiting list for home care. The government has, to give it its due, put in a lot of money into home care this year. So what we need to be saying is, is that enough? And what I think the government should do is say, we're going to introduce a waiting time guarantee. No one should wait more than 30 days for home care, which is exactly what the Royal Commission said. We need to improve quality as well. Even though we've got a good system, there's more that could be done and the government should be stepping up to do that. And that's what should be in uh, the incoming briefs to the government. You've got to actually address these things. Next, I'll introduce Jordana Hunter, Education Program Director. Improving the quality of school education is a national priority for Australia. It's important to improve outcomes for individual students um, across a range of aspects of their lives, from health to employment opportunities to democratic participation. And it's also important to lift the productivity of the Australian economy. And Australia really has some challenges here. So we know the gap between advantaged and disadvantaged children in Australia in terms of learning outcomes is very wide. It's already there by the time children are in grade three. For reading, for example, uh, the gap between children whose parents have finished university compared to children whose parents haven't finished school is already the equivalent of around two and a half years of learning. But by the time children reach year nine, that gap's expanded to over five years. 
years. So this is really troubling. Um, Ideally, schools would be reducing that gap between advantaged and disadvantaged children, but we're actually seeing it get wider. If we look at the PISA international assessment data, we're also seeing that educational outcomes for Australian children are not where they should be. Children have actually gone backwards since those PISA assessments were first conducted in the early 2000s. In reading, they're about nine months behind and in maths, they're over a year behind where they were in the start of the 2000s. And, you know, more than 40% of Australian students are not meeting Australia's uh, proficiency level in mathematics, science and reading according to those PISA assessments. So there's clearly quite a lot of work to do. There's an important role for the Commonwealth to play in policy reform to improve outcomes uh, in school education. But clearly they need to be working heavily uh, in concert with states and territories because ultimately at the end of the day, states and territories are responsible for uh, the delivery of, of school education. Teaching quality is the thing that matters most in terms of improving outcomes for students in school. So the bulk of the reforms that I'm going to talk about here really go to improving teachers' uh, ability to deliver the highest quality teaching uh, that's possible in the classroom with students. So we think there's four priority areas for the Commonwealth Government that we're hoping all parties are thinking about as we lead into the elections. The first is around attracting more high achievers uh, to become teachers in the first place. Demand for for teaching from high achievers has really fallen off in Australia uh, over the last 30 years or so. In the last decade alone, uh, demand for school leavers that were high achievers for teaching degrees fell by a third. Uh, That's a really significant fall and it's more than for any other undergraduate field of study. There's actually a lot we can do in this space. So a goal of doubling the proportion of high achievers that go into teaching is possible uh, in 10 years. Uh, One of the concrete strategies we're recommending is $10,000 a year cash in hand scholarships for school leavers with ATARs over 80 to enter into teaching. We think if there's pay rises at the top end of the profession, our research would suggest that would also make teaching a lot more attractive. There's a lot of work needed, I think, to restructure the teaching career path. We currently uh, have a very flat structure in Australia. So our undergrad, our graduate teachers start off uh, being paid reasonably well compared to other professions, but pay rises top out quite quickly. What we really need to be thinking about is extending that career path so there's opportunities for higher pay and higher responsibility as teachers move through the profession. We'd like to see two new roles introduced. So one role would be for instructional specialists. They'd be paid around $140,000 a year That's $40,000 more than the top pay rate in most states and territories. It would be limited to around 5% of the teaching profession and their responsibility would be to work with teachers in their schools to improve the quality of teaching and deliver professional development. We also think there should be a, a higher rung again. We're calling that position master teachers. They'd be paid around $180,000. Uh, around 1% of teachers would be in this role and their job would be to work with a number of schools and a number of instructional specialists to make sure best practice, evidence-based teaching practice is in place and schools are really making the most of what we know about how to teach uh, children most effectively. This would significantly improve the career structure and make the profession more attractive to high achievers. 
The other thing we need to think about is how we utilise the teaching workforce that we already have. So our latest research project, Making Time for Great Teaching, showed that 92% of teachers feel like they don't have time to prepare effectively for classroom teaching. Now, this is a real worry because we know if teachers aren't prepared when they enter the classroom, student learning is going to suffer. We need to do a lot of work here in terms of making sure that what we're asking teachers to do in schools are the jobs that they're best prepared for so that they're bringing their knowledge and skill to bear in the areas they can make the most difference in, which is classroom teaching. We also need to help them work smarter. So there's a lot of reinventing of the wheel that happens particularly around lesson planning uh, and curriculum preparation in schools based on the research we collected uh, in that latest report. And this is a real area where I think governments can do a lot to help schools have access to high quality lesson and curriculum resources that are ready to go, that teachers can adapt to their own classrooms so that there's less reinventing of the wheel and less time that's that really teachers are wasting, which they could be spending on higher value activities. So what we want to see there is a commitment from governments across Australia, uh, but particularly the Commonwealth, to invest in the type of research pilots and evaluations about how we organise the wider workforce in schools, teachers, teachers' assistants, specialists and other staff in schools to really free up more time for teachers to focus on classroom teaching. And finally, there's a desperate need in Australia to radically increase the research base, the evidence base that teachers draw on day in, day out to deliver the most effective practices in the classroom. Just like we invest in medical research, we also need to be investing in educational research. And this should be research that's directly applicable to what we're doing inside classrooms to support students. We are making some progress in this area. The new Australian Evidence Research Association, AERO, is making some good steps in this area. But we think there's an opportunity to significantly increase research funding for the benefit of all schools and all students in Australia. Finally, Danielle Wood, our CEO, will finish off discussing budget policy and the need for further integrity reforms. So we're in a really different world in terms of budgets and and fiscal strategy than we were in pre-pandemic. The government was forecasting that we were going to be running pretty sizable budget surpluses by now, net debt would be coming down. Uh, But because of COVID and the policies we've needed to respond to the health and economic situation, We've seen net debt more than doubling. It's going to peak at at more than $900 billion in 2024, 40% of GDP. And the government is projecting budget deficits as far as the eye can see. So in terms of the way forward, we're really supportive of the way the government has um, framed its strategy in the short term. They've said they're going to continue to support the economy until unemployment sustainably got a four in front of it. It looks now like we might even get to three, which is really exciting. And what we're saying in the Orange Book is that the government should stay the course with that and continue to support the economy until we see healthy wages growth again. So that means, you know, not flicking the switch to austerity, but nor does it mean throwing a whole lot of additional stimulus by way of government grants or additional tax cuts in the election, uh, given the kind of positive trajectory we're already on. I think the more interesting question is the medium-term strategy once the recovery is secured. Governments have rightly signalled that they will be less focused on budget balances and more on debt sustainability. And in a world with low interest rates, even if they do rise a bit, they are still going to be extraordinarily low by historical standards. 
we've just got less capacity to rely on monetary policy to smooth out the economic cycle. So fiscal policy is going to play a bigger role. On top of that, in a world with low interest rates, it just makes more sense to borrow to invest in things that boost the long-run capacity of the economy. So that includes things we've talked about already in this podcast, uh, infrastructure that's required to support the net zero transition, investments in school, education and health. They're going to sail over any cost benefit threshold in the current environment. So in the Orange Book, we call for a review of the medium term strategy that recognises all of those shifts, as well as some of the longer term structural challenges we do face with our budgets. We think government should explore different options, like basing a strategy on capping interest payments as a share of government revenue, uh, because that better targets the actual burden on taxpayers and provides more flexibility to respond to macroeconomic conditions. So we really hope that integrity will be a priority for the new government. And when we're talking about integrity, what we're, we're really talking about is the checks and balances that, that government puts on itself to try and ensure that it will make decisions in the public interest. Without those checks and balances, the temptation can be to, to spend money in ways that serves political interests or perhaps vested interests, the ones that, that might be knocking constantly on the door or, or are major donors. Historically, we've relied a lot on norms to regulate that type of conduct, things like ministerial accountability, but I don't think it's controversial to say that those norms are not as strong as they used to be. And while other countries, and indeed most of our state governments, have been strengthening checks and balances, the federal government's falling behind. At the same time, we've seen Australia fall down the international ratings on things like corruption perceptions. Uh, it's not terrible. We are still in the top 20, but we used to be in the top 10. And I think Australians really want to see a clear sign that governments are taking this issue seriously and that they're going to put in place rules to clean up politics and, and push for decisions in the national interest. Uh, so we have a lot of things that, that we recommend in this space. Uh, most of them, frankly, are pretty straightforward and low cost and would see the federal government catching up with the states. So first, we recommend boosting checks and balances to reduce the influence of vested interests in the policymaking process. That means things like more transparency about money and politics, lowering the donations disclosure threshold, requiring parties to aggregate donations from the same donor for disclosure purposes, disclosing the donations in real time rather than having to wait up to 19 months to see where the money has come from. We recommend capping expenditure on political advertising during election campaigns. That's really about reeling in the arms race for donations. And when that cap is binding, it means any individual donor is going to have less influence over the party's policies. Uh, and finally, we think we should publish ministerial diaries. As Australian citizens, we have a right to see who our elected representatives are meeting with and not meeting with. And that already occurs in states like New South Wales and Queensland. Second, we'd like to improve checks and balances to reduce politicised decision making. We put forward changes around things like the processes for public appointments. That's when government chooses people to be on government boards or tribunals or independent agencies. And what we're trying to do is promote merit selection and reduce the risk that those important bodies are stacked with political mates. We also propose changes around government grants to reduce the opportunities for pork barrelling. Uh, and both of those areas are going to be explored in more detail in, in future Grattan work. Finally, we make recommendations around strengthening accountability of public officials. We should have a code of conduct for all parliamentarians. You know, it is 
hard to believe, frankly, that at the moment only ministers are subject to such a code. So backbenchers can accept gifts of any value. They can go and take another job. Uh, so long as they declare there's really very little in the way of um, constraints on behaviour. And finally, we need to establish a Commonwealth Integrity Commission with teeth. So that means it needs to be able to investigate uh, tip-offs. It needs to be able to pursue serious misuse of, of public funds and public power, not just criminal corruption. It means public hearings in some circumstances, and it means the ability to make findings of fact. So that is such an important complement to the other changes I've talked about. Uh, we think of an integrity commission as the last line of defence, but there are also those really other important steps that you can put in place to reduce the chances that our parliamentarians and bureaucrats would need to appear before such a commission. There is you know, a lot to do in this space. But I think uh, if a government is willing to tackle some of these difficult issues, uh, it would go a long way to restoring public trust in the political process. We hope you've enjoyed this special podcast. If you'd like to read the Orange Book, it's available for free on our website at grattan.edu.au. Please take care and thanks so much for listening.